0: Welcome to Shop Talk Live, fine Woodworking Magazine bi-weekly podcast. I'm your host and Fine Woodworking editor Tom McKenna. Joining me today, as always, our Executive Art Director, Mike
1: Pekovich. What's up, guys?
0: And senior editor, Matt Kenny. Hello, everyone. Hey Matt. Yay. Hey, before we get started, uh, I'd like to remind all of our listeners to spread the word about Shop Talk Live. Drop by our iTunes page and leave a comment and prop us up with a generous star rating if you so desire. Remember, you can also find us at iHeartRadio. And don't forget to check out our website for our exciting tool giveaway for Fine Woodworking's 40th anniversary. Uh, We're giving away 40 great tools, but you have to enter for each one. We'll be starting the sweepstakes next week. To enter, go to finewoodworking.com slash 40 sweeps, and that's the number 40, finewoodworking.com slash 40 sweeps. Um, let's prime the pump for this week's episode by talking about something that happened today. Um, a lot of folks may not realize that we all actually yeah, actually put out a magazine, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> today we shipped an issue, and uh, it's also Donut Day, which is very exciting. Yes, You know, we got to pump us up with some sugar to make the deadline. Every time
2: we send an issue to the printer,
0: it's Donut Day. Yes, it's a fun time. Yeah. And there's also Halloween candy, so we're all amped up on (laughs) sugar. Um, Mm -hmm. And as you guys know, we, we, uh, we have an article in this issue by Windsor chairmaker Peter Galbert, and it's quite a departure from a topic that we've covered before. And one of the things that Peter likes to do is make wooden spoons for fun and it's a cool way for him to get away from the complexity of Windsor chair making and just to kinda go for a walk in the woods and grab a branch and start carving.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been familiar with Peter's work for a long time. He does fantastic chairs, wrote a book on making Windsor chairs and he probably wasn't the first guy I would think of to sort of head out on his back porch, get out his Whitland knives and make some spoons, but his spoons are really nice. They're very simple, they're you know have the facets of the tool marks and everything but you know they they really demonstrate his eye for design they're really elegant and very nice yeah makes me want to go carve a spoon
2: but you know what, yeah. it spoon carving is very popular now if I, you go on the on the instagram on
1: the instagram on the instagram
2: uh tons of people are making spoons yeah. and selling spoons a uh, really popular
0: thing to do right now Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, like I said, it's something we haven't covered in, I don't know, since I've been at the magazine. So it's been a long, long time.
1: Yeah, and unlike, you know, making a coffee table, the uh, startup for, in terms of tools, you need a couple straight knives and a hook knife and maybe an axe. You could probably get that at your hardware store if you want. Yeah. Yeah. And some firewood. The axe
0: is my favorite part.
2: Another another good thing (laughs) about uh, spoon carving is that it's not pin turning.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a one.
2: So there you go. As long as you're not pen turning, you've got it. You're doing. You're doing pretty well. Boon carving. It's not
0: pen turning. I like that. I like that. <laughs> I wonder if we're going to get some angry <clears throat> emails about that. No, just some comments directed toward you.
2: Yeah, pen turning is actually tremendously <clears throat> popular. Too. It is. It is yeah. unbelievably popular.
0: Except uh, when we did it. As an article, it project won't. article once before it didn't do well, so it's, it's just not popular know. with our readers.
1: So apparently, <laughs> exactly. so Peter sent in a whole collection of spoons in order for us to photograph them for the article. Yep. And we've been getting calls from Peter. Um, are are you guys like done with those spoons yet? And it turns out he took them out of his kitchen, and <laughs> uh, folks at home were a little upset because they didn't have any spoons to use. In the kitchen, so <laughs> uh, sorry, Peter, we'll get those spoons back to you as soon as possible. They're in the mail. Yeah.
0: All right, let's move on, shall we? Um, let's get to some questions. The first up is one from Mike Donaldson of Woodbury, Minnesota, and he says, Shop Talk Gents, in issue 249, you have an article about the double-duty outfit table that also serves as a workbench. Then in tools and shops, you feature the shaker workbench, neither of which has any dog holes. I can't think of anything aside from marking, assembly, and finishing that I could use my benchtop for without using some form of work-holding apparatus, typically a holdfast. To make a short question long, what good is a workbench without dog holes? Well, first of all, we're all cat
2: people. (laughs) I I never use dog holes, ever. Ever. And I make furniture all the time. And I use... uh, Things like planing stops, yep. uh, hook, saw hooks, yep. uh, shooting boards, all things that can be either hooked over the front edge of the bench or clamped into my front vice. Yes. Yep.
1: And one of the features that both the benches um, that Mike mentioned are conspicuously lacking, neither one of them has an end vice. And bench dog holes, bench dogs are typically used in conjunction with an end vise to clamp boards securely for doing all kinds of stuff, and because they don't have end vices, there really isn't a need for the bench dogs per se. Um, If you want to add a hole or two for a hold fast, that's cool. Um, I actually have a dog hole opposite my front vise on the other edge of my workbench, just so I have a little T-square plane stop, I'll clamp one end in the vise and the opposite little end of the blade registers against that bench dog. But that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. I have
2: three holes for a hold fast. Uh, One of them is so that I can uh, clamp something down over one of the legs and chop directly over the leg. Cool. I almost never use it. Uh, The other two are in line, sort of perpendicular to the uh, jaw of my twin screw vise. And that's so that I can put a stop in there. And playing against that stop and have it supported not only by the uh, clamped in the vise, but also yeah. have two hold fast just the really just the bar of it pressing against the bar. All oh, right. Uh, you don't even need to put a hold, you know, f- knock it down with the hold fast. And yeah. I also have on my bench on the end where the face vise is, I have a big stop built into the end of the bench. That's the full width of the bench. and so, oh, I can, so that is your plain stop. Yeah. I, I can <laughs> u, I use that some. I also, with all my small stuff that I make, I have a lot of small stops. Uh, micro stops. Micro stops. Uh, that usually involve a piece of plywood, you know, an eighth-inch thick stop glued to it, yeah. and either a cleat that gets clamped in the vise or a hook that gets hooked over the front edge of the bench. But I will say this. If you do a lot of handwork, you might need more... Holes for hold fast Yeah. You know?
0: I've got, I mean, I have a pretty rudimentary bench, but I have a bunch of dog holes in front of my face vise or front vise. Um, I thought I'd use them more often. You know, I've got a bunch of bench dogs in there, but I, I do rarely use them. Um, I do use um, one of the Veritas plane, planing stops. For as a and stop, I don't have. Uh, oh yeah, those are actually pretty ready cool. Ready-made ones. Yeah. So I use the dog holes primarily for that, but otherwise. That's
1: with uh, that sort of thin plate, yep. quarter inch thick, or it's actually slightly less than quarter inch, and it has a two posts that slide along yep. the plate. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have um, a couple of those guys as well, so I do have a dog hole, you know, a pair of dog holes at that front vice location for those guys. Yeah,
0: and I and I occasionally use a halt fast in in those holes, but. Okay. Uh, yeah,
2: I, you know. I think the one thing. Is you don't need a Swiss cheese bench, right? Yeah, with a bunch of <laughs> holes in it for dogs and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I don't even have a tail vise, so you know I'm definitely not going to have a row of dog mm-hmm. holes along the front apron like you see on a lot of traditional benches.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. I think the the answer for Mike is probably, hey, if you want dog holes, go ahead. Have sure. at it. You yeah. know. So. Yes. So it's a, a bench
2: without dog <clears throat> holes is actually quite a lot of good. <laughs>
0: Mr. Donaldson. Take that. All right. Hey, it's time for our all time favorite tools of the week. All
2: right. Who's up? Who's gonna go first? Mike's got one. All Mike's right. got one in his hat. It's, it's very d- it's disappointing. It's gonna be good.
1: One of the better best tools of all time of the week, <laughs> I would have to say. So I like to cook and I treat my culinary utensils in the kitchen exactly like I treat my tools in the shop. So when we got married, I basically traded in half of our wedding gifts to get a good set of chef's knives that I still have, and I keep them really sharp. So um, I've just gone through... How unbelievably tacky. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go on. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> There's certain people we couldn't invite over for a few years because they'd be looking for right. that crystal vase on the, the counter, dog, yeah. and the it wasn't there. It out of the bag, right? Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, So I'd just gone through, like, my third toaster in a year and a half, and I didn't want to spend any more money on a cheap toaster. So I wanted, like, just a killer bomb-proof industrial toaster. Didn't want to go to Williams-Sonoma and spend, you know, way over my budget. So I went to my local restaurant supply place where they have a lot of used, you know, awesome, like, deep fryers, big old grills those giant mixtures they have in um, Hobart's Hobart's and yes. for like bakeries and that kind of stuff, yeah. like everything you, you could ever want in opening your own restaurant. They've got it there. So they had this, this really uh, awesome, awesome toasters, really cheap. Same one at Williams Sonoma for, you know, 300 bucks. They had it for like 99 bucks. Cause brand, it was used brand Well, actually these were brand new in the box. The only thing is there is no plug on the end of the cord. Which is weird, but they said, no, that's the way they come from the factory. So I put my money down, brought this thing home. went to Home Depot, got a cord. I got a plug for the cord, attached it, plugged it in. It turned on, but it took a really long time for the toast to toast. Like it got warm, but it wasn't browning. And by the time the toast got brown, it was like dry and hard as a rock. There was something going on here. So I thought, maybe I have the wrong plug for the cord. So I flipped over the toaster. And uh, to look at the little voltage stuff, it was a 220-volt toaster. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) That was like the most awesome thing in the world. Like, it out-toastered me. It's like, you want a good toaster? Here you go, 220 volts. Mm -hmm. So in my shop, you know, I got 220-volt table saw, band saw, joiner, planer, and toaster.
2: That's right. That's your shop me. toaster.
1: So for about five seconds, I thought, maybe I'll just keep it in my shop. <laughs> you know, just like toast all my toast out there. So I took it back to this place. I said, you know, what's the deal? I can't use this. It's 220 volt. And they said, is this for your house? I said, yeah. They go like, why? I said, because it's an awesome toaster. And they just look at me and... They kind of rummaged around for the back, and they did find a used one that was 110, uh. and, um, and it works perfectly. And it's this big old, and, and I like it's on the box It says for commercial use only.
0: And it goes to 11.
1: Yes. So that's my toaster. It's a four-slice dualit commercial toaster for commercial use only.
0: I think in our next uh, podcast, Mike is going to give us uh, some tips on how to do sand shading in a toaster.
1: Yes, I think so. So yeah. I, I'm just – I'm brand new to the Instagram. If you go to my Instagram page, you can see my toaster. I posted a picture of it.
2: And your Instagram page is not about woodworking.
1: It's all about woodworking and my toaster. <laughs> and toasters. Only woodworking.
2: Yeah. So that's awesome. it. That's it. My toaster. Well, here's something I just realized when you told that story that you didn't – I don't think you told me – I I heard the first time you told it to me is that when, if you go and buy a piece of – something that has to be plugged in, right? Yeah. There are, they fall into two categories, the kind that come with plugs, yes. and those are always 110 volt. Yes. And the kind that do not come with plugs, and those are always 220 volts.
1: So far, that logic holds. Yes. Yeah. That's,
0: that's
2: Matt's tool tip of the week. That's right. Because <laughs> 220 outlets, are, they're so varied in, the, in what they are, that's why they never give you a plug. I guess so. In 110, it's pretty much all the same. There's a few that are different, but the standard one is standard. right? Yeah. But anyways, Good to is it my turn? If you'd like. Okay. Uh, so my favorite tool this week is one that I've been using more and more recently, although I've always used it a lot since I've been at the magazine, and that is the Shop's Drum Sander. Yes. Um, old Performax. It is an Old Performax Drum Sander, a 1632 model. And I love it because... Uh, a lot of the uh, boxes I make and uh, are ve- have very thin sides, like three sixteenths. Th- uh, yeah. And once you get under a quarter inch with most benchtop
1: planers, except for my planer.
2: Yes, but yours is not a benchtop planer. Oops, pardon me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, point taken. So this thing handles really thin stock.
2: It handles really thin stock. So it just goes through there. You get no snipe. You get no tear out, nothing. So it's great for figured wood as well. And I also use it whenever I make shops on veneers because those are uh, less than a 16th inch thick. Right. And there's no way you can send that through. Even um, my planer, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, even... uh, I should say less than an eighth of an inch thick, all my shops on veneers are. Um, so I use it for that all the time, and uh, I'm going to have to save up and get one for myself. Yeah,
1: most people yeah. around here don't like it because they try to use it like a planer and hog off like a sixteenth of an inch of stock. Yeah, and you can't. It's not no. working. It's yeah. really slow, but it does work really, really well.
2: It does really work well. There's some, I mean, there are some issues with drum sanders that are painted pain in the neck, uh, traditional design, is that you're supposed to adjust the head to be parallel to the platen, which is kind of a pain in the neck. Yeah. Uh, there's now Supermax, which use are the people that I believe that used to own Performax before they sold it to Jet. They have a new model out where the head is always it's it's cast. The head is ca- has a cast body, so it never moves. You adjust the the bed parallel to the, the head, right. but also there's it's a pain in the butt to put sometimes to put the uh, paper on the head and keep it tight uh so there are some finicky things to look out for when you're using one but um once you know what those are you can actually get really good great results from a uh a sander like that yeah
1: and i think it's one of those tools where if it's in your own shop you take care of it you keep it tuned up it's going to fare much better and perform much better than Getting abused in a by in the guys a, from Fine Home Building <laughs> in a public shop. <laughs> I,
2: so I once went in there and a guy from Home Building was sending a, a piece of concrete through it <laughs> with <laughs> nails in it, with right. nails in it. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So.
0: Hey, well, I have um, my tool. My favorite all-time tool of the week is uh, a rasp and file set. I, I it's funny when I first started working at the magazine. Um, I hadn't really used a rasper file since my ninth grade woodworking class where I shaped a whale. Awesome. I did a shark. (laughs) It's funny. It's funny because I never, you know, in the past year, I'd been making um, boxes and kind of smaller projects that the idea of setting up a router to make, you know, pulls and handles and things like that just didn't appeal to me. And I thought it would take longer to get set up to make something that I'm still going to have to revise anyway. So I went to Lowe's first, and I bought some Nicholson rasps, and and they're they're kind of cheap, and they worked really well at hacking away at rough material. But I always had to do a lot of sanding. Right. And last year there was, an it's it's sort of an unfortunate thing, but it was a, a good thing for me. A, uh, a local woodworker had passed away, and he had a, a shop full of tools and materials that he was that I'm sorry that his family was selling. Hmm. And I came across these Italian rasps. Oh. Um, they're the Karate brand. And I don't know... Karate? Ca- karate. Uh, C-O-R-R-I-D-A, I believe. Oh, and not uh, Karate. No, not Karate. Not like high Karate. <laughs> no. The <laughs> wonderful um, aftershave. But these things are super fine. I got a bunch of different sizes. Hmm. And uh, it takes very little cleanup to get the shape perfected. And I got these well, things at a super bargain. I mean... The thing about rafts and
2: files, but rafts in particular, if they are what's called hand stitched, and there's some irregularity in them, that eliminates uh, a lot of tear out, a lot of tracks and yeah. tear out, and it minimizes the amount of uh, sanding or whatever you'll have to do later right. because the uh, the placement of the teeth is so random. Yeah.
0: And and that's the difference between the the Nicholson ones I bought at the big box store, <clears throat> excuse me, and these Italian ones. They're they're a lot they have a lot better cut. Very cool. It's a lot of fun to just kind of scrape away at wood and shape it the way you want it to be. Yeah. So that's it. That's me. We moving on?
2: Tom in his basement with like a piece of (laughs) 16 quarter ebony, and he's just like. Dad, what are you doing down there? He comes out later with a little handle like this. <laughs> a little
1: drawer pull. A
0: five pound log <laughs> turned into a one ounce. Uh, I did pull. it all with rasp and files. <clears throat> you
1: look like a coal miner covered in <laughs> ebony dust.
0: Except for the white, you know, I wear the mask around my face and I'll have right. a little bit of whiteness there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's all fun. <clears throat> what a picture. Um, let's get back to some more questions. This one is from Jason Burt. No location given. Jason writes, My wife gave me a spoke shave as a gift last Christmas. I very much appreciate the gift, but I am saddened because I can't get it to work very well. The spoke shave has a curved bottom. I've tried to make sure the blade is nice and sharp, up to 8,000 grit on a Shapton stone, but I still can't get it to take nice, clean, smooth shavings.
1: Well? Well, um, I'm, when I first got my spoke shave, I actually got a pair of spoke shaves. I got one with the flat bottom I assumed I'd use that for outside curves and one with a rounded bottom that I assumed I was going to use that for inside curves. Turns out I use the flat bottom shave 99% of the time because even on inside curves it's a lot easier to use. Um, it's got that really really short sole but on inside curves why I like that is the front and back edges of that sole will contact the workpiece and you just extend the blade down until you're making a cut so you really have sort of a, a three-point um, geometry there you know the front and back on a curved sole spoke shave. if that curve is a tighter radius than the curve that you're shaving there's really no stable bearing surface and your technique has to be really really good and you can dial that in what you want to do is you want to start the cut and um, on the, the front sole ahead of the blade. And then as you're making the cut, you don't want to, to grip it in the palms of your hands. You want to sort of pinch the spoke shave on either side of the blade between your fingers and your thumbs, and you have much better rotational control over the tool. And you basically want to, in essence, roll the tool back, lowering the blade into the cut, and you're bearing on the sole ahead of the blade, and then the blade. And as you can imagine, this takes a little bit more finesse. Um, The blade has to be set for really, really light cut. And then once you get your technique down, it's really important to pay attention to the direction of the grain Mm -hmm. uh, when you're spoke shaving. You always wanna be working downhill. So on an inside curve, typically you're starting on on the ends of the board working toward the center. And on an outside curve, you're typically starting in the center of the board working each direction away down towards each yeah. end of the yeah. board
2: downhill. What you said about using <clears> a <throat> flat sole on the inside curve yeah. actually reminds me of something else related to what Tom was just talking about, which is where I learned that principle was with a file or a rasp on the inside curve. Huh. You don't use a a half round. Oh. you use a flat rasp, and you get two points of contact, and it's easier to keep the curve fair
1: Interesting. Very by cool. using
2: a flat rasp uh, or a flat uh, file to hmm. clean it up.
0: Yeah. I, when I, I had done a, a tool review with Chris Gochner, and it was on shaves. You, re- you reviewed Chris <laughs> Gockner. I did <laughs> as a with, tool. With, <laughs> no, no. Did he get a five-star let me, rating? Let me clarify. <laughs> yeah. Chris Gochner had done a tool review that I edited, and mm. when I was out photographing it, um, this is on shaves, and uh, we had focused... The article on flat-bottom shaves because we surmised that it was a, the better tool for, you know, a lot of folks. But he had gotten some round-bottom ones from manufacturers, and he kept trying to show me how to use it, man. And it was it was a bear because, you know, the flat-bottom, like Mike was saying, it's easy to get a registration point and figure out where you're at. But with the round-bottom ones, man, I, you know, just trying to figure out where to start and get the the pivot right and all that other stuff, yeah. I was... I was, the, I was having fits, so I don't own a round-bottom shave.
2: Didn't, uh, didn't Queen have a song called Flat Bottom Shaves? P- uh,
1: possibly. <laughs> uh, there is one benefit to the round-bottom shave um, if you get your technique down, and that is because um, the, you're riding on the front of the sole and then you're sort of adjusting the depth of cut through your, the lateral motion um, of the way you hold it. It's going to take a consistent depth cut, whether you're going on the inside of a curve or an outside of a curve. On a flat bottom uh, spoke shave, you're going to have to adjust the depth of the cut because on an inside curve where the front and back of the soil are contacting, that blade has to extend down a certain bit in order to cut the wood. If you then go and cut an outside curve there, that blade is going to be sticking out way, way too much. So you just have to... Um, that's why I like a spoke shave where my depth adjustment is really fast and really precise. That's why I, I like an, a spoke shave with the twin adjusters as opposed to something I gotta tap with a hammer. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right, I think we've answered the question. Well, maybe not. I guess the, the answer is he's gonna have to practice and kind of get the feel for that shave or maybe go out and invest in a flat bottom shave and, sure. and start that way. Um, yeah. We did have a couple questions about right versus left tilt table saws and um, <coughs> Whoa, that was not a table saw. That was my file. Um, And we have one that I think can answer uh, both both guys. Scott Lynch of Madison, Wisconsin writes, I'm considering replacing my right tilt contractor saw with one of the well-reviewed small cabinet saws featured in the magazine, which is left tilt. At present, I don't cut a lot of bevels on wide stock, which seems like the big advantage of left tilt, and it's heavily counterbalanced by the convenience of cursor accuracy on right tilt saws. Can you weigh the pros and cons? Interesting thought. I have a right tilt saw, and <clears throat> I remember the first time I, I was making a cabinet, and I, was, I wanted to put a wide bevel on the, the bottom edge, and I think I was kind of a rookie, and I didn't really understand the benefit of a right versus left tilting saw, and what I had to do was completely change my, my order of work and move to the left side of the saw and I built this tall fence and made some kind of a contraption to try it. And, and I just felt like I was going to die because it was just completely working, using my left hand, pushing the workpiece through. Oh, yeah. You're on the and wrong I'm, side yeah, of the saw. And it's and really tricky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm trying to balance this, you know, at least three by three workpiece <laughs> on the saw. And I was just like, what am I doing? And I was violating the basic code of if something doesn't feel right, don't do it. Yeah. But I did it and I survived. But I vowed I would never do that again. So I, 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 and I think the next saw I get will certainly be a left tilt. I have a right tilt saw because it's
2: just an old saw, and it doesn't really present problems to me at all. Occasionally, I'll need to rip a bevel onto a long edge, and then I just have to slide my fence over to the left-hand side of the blade. But I actually, I think that uh, I would want to reframe the, the question that uh, Scott is asking. Because he's he says, okay, well, what's the benefit of... You way know, the benefit of a right tilt versus a left tilt. And he yeah. only mentions two things. Uh, never having to adjust your cursor, right. which is nice. And then he says left tilt, which is the bevel issue, which is nice. Yeah. But then he says he's thinking about getting one of the brand new... Uh, a brand new cabinet saw, one of the ones we just reviewed in the magazine. And I think that the... Have the, the, the the cursor adjustment is such a small thing if you're talking about a brand-new cabinet saw because that brand-new cabinet saw will also have a riving knife, right. a really good blade guard. It will have good dust collection. It will have a whole other mess of things, which a right-tilt saw, because right-tilt saws really haven't been made in a while. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. So probably has a better fence. Probably has, has a better fence. fence.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, has so much else that's go- in its favor that... When weighed against all of that stuff, the fact that your cursor may need to – is becomes a problem. But it's really only a problem if you switch from a thin curve to standard curve blades all the time, which just don't do that. And then it's not really an issue. Yeah. And if you put a dado set in, well, any saw, well, I guess a right tilt still – it's still works. No, work.
1: even still because yeah. the width of the carbide cutter. Right. I, I don't trust – unless I've got my standard combination blade you in don't the saw. You trust it. Anyways. I don't. I don't trust the cursor. Anymore. Yeah, I, I never always measure. Yeah, yeah I yeah. always.
0: I never use the cursor, even on the, the big saw in our shop. I, I don't trust the cursor. I just measure. It's just, yep
1: with a steel rule. Yeah, I've like you guys. I have a, a right tilt saw, old Delta Unisaw, but almost everywhere I teach and at the shop at work, I work on a left tilt saw. And the answer is, it's it's no big deal. It's easy to get used to. Um, the the biggest pain switching back and forth between right and left tilt saws is the power is, switches, it always seems to be on the opposite side of the saw. So you're reaching down, you're yeah. not finding it. Um, it's, it, yeah, it, it's not that big of a deal. Don't worry if the thing that's stopping you is that you have a right tilt saw and you're kind of freaked out that if you get a left tilt saw, you won't like it. it it's just about a non-issue, not enough to, to worry. And, and as Matt said, there's a lot of good things yeah. About upgrading to a new saw, especially a saw with a riving knife that far outweigh anything, you know, any cursor yeah. uh, accuracy yeah. mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. you'll get with the left-tilt right. saw. He, so go he, for it.
0: And he mentioned the contractor, that he's got a contract oh, yeah. saw, which doesn't, you know, I'm sure it has an open base. And so, yeah. you know, these, oh, yeah. the newer cabinet saws have, you know, enclosed bases and cabinets and great dust collection. So it's an upgrade no matter how you look at yeah, it. Yeah, the
1: power, vibration. um just the fact that the uh, trunnions are mounted to the base inside the tabletop, it's going to be a lot easier to dial that thing in and get your miter slots lined up just right.
2: Yeah, I, I you know, did, I just want to pass me that it's a, he has he currently owns a contractor saw. In which case, what do you what are you thinking about? <laughs> just get rid of it. <laughs> hey, hey, that's what I own. <laughs> I mean, if I because I'm thinking I've got a right tilt cabinet saw. Yeah, and I could see maybe debating that a little bit for like five minutes. But if you have a contractor saw. And you're able to get any cabinet saw. There's just there's no advantage at all yeah. to having the
0: contractor saw. I like my contractor saw. No, mm-hmm. I really don't. Oh. Um, <laughs> just no, it's rid, fine. Get rid of that. I have a really nice bandsaw now, so I do a lot of my ripping on, my, on the bandsaw. But uh, it's still good for joinery. Oh yeah. My contractor saw so just blows dust everywhere. Uh, yeah, there's no problem with the contractor saw. But he's talking about
2: it's an up- should oh. I get a cabinet saw. Or maybe not because it's yeah. not right. tilt. it's like, yeah. what are you crazy? No, get a cabinet saw. <laughs> oh, I would upgrade to one of those um,
0: one of those smaller cabinet saws in a in a second if I had the budget for it. Mm-hmm. So
2: you mean you're the editor of
0: Fine Woodworking? You don't have the what? <laughs> just I miss. just bought some chisels. So <laughs> I gotta send some kids to college too. So that's another thing I gotta tool. worry about.
2: Everyone um, everyone thinks that the editors at Fine Woodworking have just endless tool budgets and crazy amount of tools in our shops and only Mike does
0: only Mike does and he has a toaster
1: (laughs) and he has a toaster Two twenty volt (laughs) toaster all right three phase
0: well let's let's move on to uh another question this one is from Ryan Horschman and uh Ryan says I'm having some maple trees taken down on my property and I'm planning on having somebody come in with a portable sawmill to mill these trees into lumber Do you have any advice on how much I should have cut into what sizes or types of cuts, i.e. rift versus quarter four quarter, eight quarter, or even 12 quarter? Should I have stuff cut larger to account for loss in final milling? What should I be thinking about in terms of drying time? I'm sure a lot of these things depend on the type of projects I have in mind. I'm hoping to do some casework without the plywood. I do have the tools to handle rough lumber, so that isn't a concern. Thanks for any advice you can give, and I think... uh, we talked a little bit about this before and it sounded like Matt had some really good answers.
1: Uh, well, Matt always good. has really good answers.
0: Some snarky, some not so snarky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, first,
2: of, I would no four quarter. I mean, uh, assuming you have a bandsaw, I mean, he says he has this stuff. So, if you have a, a bandsaw with reasonable resaw capacity, no four quarter because you can make four quarter yourself later. So, what I would do and if if it's just like I'm getting this cut up, it's not for a specific thing. And I, if it were for a specific piece of furniture or something, I might know that I need this this cut and that cut and this size and all that. But if it's just cutting it up for future use for whatever, I think from the center of the tree, I would cut everything through and through, uh, which just means you're just cutting slices off of it. Right. And uh, so I'd cut it through and through. From the center of the tree, I would want maybe a 12-quarter uh, piece
1: right at the at yeah. the pith right at the pith Yeah.
2: maybe even sixteen quarter, mm. uh, but we'll get to that because that's a drying issue. Yeah, right. Um, then everything else, I think I would go eight quarter, and you do have to make it a little bit thicker than the final dimension you're after. So if you're after eight quarter, you might need to actually cut it at more like nine quarter, and uh, when it, as it dries, it'll shrink a little bit in thickness. Uh, so that's what I would do, just through and through, a big chunk from the middle, and that big piece in the middle actually will give you, it'll be almost all riff sawn or quarter sawn. Pretty much the whole thing will be, except right in the middle of the pith. Right. Uh, and then everything else will be eight quarter, and you can resaw it and get whatever you want from it later on. So yeah, I think that's
1: great advice. The only thing I'd say, if you know you're going to be making you know, a case piece or a tabletop or something and you have these nice wide boards that you may not be able to resaw, I'd say if you want something thinner than a quarter, maybe go to like a heavy five quarter, but certainly don't go four quarter because right. it's going to shrink and warp and you're going to end up with almost nothing usable of width or great length.
2: Yeah, yeah. If you know yeah. that you want to make a tabletop and you need boards that are X by X and this thick, you should just get them milled up so that when they dry, all you have to, you know, you're not doing any more uh, resawing or anything like that.
1: Right. Now, and, Maple, I know folks um have issues with sticker stains as those black stains at the stickers, especially in Maple that has a high sugar content. Mm-hmm. What do you... What have you heard about that? How do you get rid of those guys?
2: Um, I think what you can do is use a... Instead of using a wood uh, for the sticker, you could go and buy some of those uh, uh, synthetic decking boards or planks. I think mm. they're called Trex or something. Yep. Trex might be Trex a brand, brand. name. Okay. Yeah. And you can cut those up and make stickers out of them. And I believe that that will eliminate sticker stain. I think also... Uh well I'll say that I know that we did it once as a Q and A, and that's what uh, was recommended was getting some of those synthetic things like that to to use this. make and that's what I believe you can actually buy stickers that are made from that Mm -hmm. and if you Google I I think they're if you just Google sticker like wood drying sticker or something like kiln Mm -hmm. sticker you'll probably find I don't know if you'll be able to buy them though if you're just a dude Mm -hmm. you know you might have to be a company just a dude yeah uh. Wholesale. You might only be able to buy them wholesale or business to business. And uh, in terms of drying time, uh, the generic rule of thumb is one year for each
1: inch. Right.
2: But the thicker it gets, the less accurate that Mm -hmm. is, I I think. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: So. You mean longer or shorter? Longer. Longer.
2: It takes longer. Um, So uh, for eight quarter, I would say two years, you should be ready to
0: go. Yeah, Uh, but you still have to bring it inside, let it acclimate inside the shop too and all that fun stuff and i it's funny i was just up at garrett hack hack's farm and he um he mills a lot of his own lumber and i learned something that i didn't really think about before and talking about usable lumber from a log and where you know the usable wood really is for furniture making and i was shocked how little how small uh amount of of wood is usable on a tree he basically said it's You know, just above the root to where the first branches start popping out, and I was was shocked. And I was like, "Really? That doesn't seem like a lot." So, um, just another tip, I guess, if you if you're new to this, you don't want the thin stuff above that first that first row of branches. Right.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, the other stuff, like if there could be a nice secondary wood, Uh, limbs and so forth, are tend to be considered reaction woods. And you don't want to make furniture from them. At least traditional furniture. I'm sure you could do something with it. You could maybe turn with it. I know guys do turn with limb wood. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could turn with it, but make a, sp- uh, make a spoon. Make some stick you furniture. You could make spoons. Yeah. You could make stick furniture. But yeah, in terms of usable lumber, it's normally it's any everything up to the f- the the first limbs. Yeah, yeah. you might get lucky. You might have 80 feet of that on a big tree, or yeah. uh, you know, might yeah. only be 10 feet or 8
0: feet. Hey, we we did um, we did a great article on drying your own lumber back in two thousand nine, our March April issue, and it's uh, issue number two hundred four. If you want to go back and dive in to get some in- information on how to stack and cover and take care of the wood as it dries. Cool. Yeah,
2: another thing you can do with really thick stuff if you want to speed up the drying. Let's say you know you need some legs and you need you know you need twelve uh, quarter lumber for that. So. I would let it dry for maybe a year or so outside or whatever, and then cut out billets that are closer to your final dimensions and bring those in, Right. and those will dry quicker. And sure. then the big old honking piece of lump, uh, you know, a big old slab will dry. Yeah. So you can you can speed up the drying that way. And, and uh, the other thing to do, if you have enough of it, look for a local sawmill that might have its own kiln, and then they'll kiln dry it. We did that once.
1: Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, do you guys want to talk about technique? Is that or something we want tool? to? Think? Our favorite technique. Favorite of all time technique this week? of all time this week. Um, I have to back out because I'm in, uh, I'm in uh, marching band hell right now, so I don't have much time
2: in the <laughs> shop lately. Does your time. favorite technique involve? Uh, sourdough bread in a toaster?
1: I do have a a very specific (laughs) technique for the order of toasting. Um, It it involves preheating your toaster before you put the toast in, but that is not my favorite technique of the week. Uh, I'll let you go first though, because you have a little show and tell guy. I
2: hope you're joking about the preheating of the toaster. That's no joke. Mike, you're broken. (laughs) All right, uh, so my technique is actually something I learned from Philip Lowe this summer when I was teaching a class And um, it's awesome. Usually when I make up a box, and this is actually part of a uh, box I'm making right now.
1: So you got a little miter box, almost four inches square?
2: It's about, it's three and a half inches square, a little mitered box. And normally tape is enough to get nice tight miters. Uh, There's a way that you can, when you're putting the pieces on the tape and and it makes it really tight so that when you fold it all up, the tape really stretches and pulls things tight. Um this particular stuff had kind of cupped a little bit so it wasn't closing up at the top and the bottom. And I remembered the uh little technique I had learned from Phil this summer, which involves a uh piece of string. Mm-hmm. Uh in this case I'm using uh some hemp twine. Uh and uh what you do is it should be long enough to loop around twice.
1: And it's still on there, it's looped around, yep. and it's still pretty loose. It's kind of I mean, loose, that's yeah. That's not holding anything in place, man. Right,
2: so it's not. So then the other part of this technique are just some little pieces of wood. Okay. And these go inside. They're about They're quarter sticks. by quarter. It doesn't matter how big they are, because what you can do is always adjust the length of your string okay. to accommodate them. So uh, now, these...
0: I'm sorry, do the, do the uh, sticks have to be as long as the box is tall?
2: It's a good idea because then what we'll end up doing is getting clamping pressure along the whole joint. If they're short, then you won't get clamping pressure along the whole joint.
1: All right. So for the listening audience, Matt is inserting two sticks on each side underneath the two winds of string vertically.
0: And, And he's not smiling. He's very serious about this.
1: I'm concentrating. He is. He looks a little nervous. He's putting them in... Oh, the four side things are getting tight, so it's kind of putting them in more toward the center of the side and then sliding them toward the corners. Yeah, so
2: you put them all in towards the center and then you slide them out towards the corner. And what this does is tighten up the string Ah. and also puts pressure on the corner joint. And that pulls the joint together tight. And you can also do things like spread this here the string is sort of stuck in the middle right you can spread it out so it's top and bottom and that does even better cool and if you get them out here and it's a little loose like this is now it's a little loose you can always just take one of them and turn it see these are not square sticks they're kind of rectangular right so i can just turn turn one of them vertical or turn it so the higher side is up and you can get more pressure. Cool. So the sticks are,
1: let, let's say they're sort yeah. of on one face a quarter, the other maybe three eighths of an inch. Yeah, something like that. So you start with the short sides and flip them to the wide side if you need to. Yep. Cool. And you just
2: pull them out and it puts a. Mi- it'll tighten up any miter
0: like that. Ah. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, we, like did, we had a, a method of work that was similar, I think, for, was for a frame miter where the guy was using dowels. Oh, yeah. Um, along a band clamp. Right. So.
2: Yeah, same principle. Yeah, same principle, exactly. These are nice, though. because This is nice because you have these flat surfaces on the little sticks that are going to put clamping pressure, uh, especially once you get the string spread out like that, top and bottom. You can even loop it around three times, and you get one in the middle, one at the top, one at the bottom. And it just puts that nice, even clamping pressure along the whole joint, and you end up with really nice, tight miters. Nice. So... It worked great on this, uh, these little boxes that I'm making right now. All right. So. Awesome.
1: All right. Yeah. Well, I have a, a technique that I've um, heard about for a while. It's the first time I put it in use. I'm making a little box, and the lid is made in two panels, and the two panels are hinged together. So think of like a little bifold door. Um, The the stock is pretty thin, maybe three-eighths of an inch thick, and the hinges that I'm using to connect the two sides together, basically the hinge leaf is the same width as the thickness of the stock. So instead of having a U-shaped little uh, pocket for the hinge, it's just straight all the way across. So I found that when I was attaching the hinges to these two little uh, panels, it was really hard to register The hinges along the thickness of the stock and the first time I tried it it was a little bit off and it just bugged the crap out of me so um, I pulled the hinges off and realized on one of the one of the panels the hinges were actually pretty well aligned so I left those as is and I remembered a trick uh, Bob Van Dyke told me about um, he learned it from Harold Ianson who was a fantastic federal period uh, furniture maker um, back in the day And what he would do when he was hinging boxes to make sure the top and bottoms were perfectly aligned is he would actually glue the hinges in place. I think with some 5-Minute Epoxy, that's what I ended up using. And then once that was dry, you'd go ahead and screw the hinges in place once they were glued in place. So I had the hinges attached to one panel. I applied some 5-Minute Epoxy to the opposite panel, hinge mortises, slid everything together on a flat surface to, to register the two panels flush with each other, waited for the glue to dry, and then I just drilled right through the hinge holes and screwed the hinges in place, and it worked perfect. worked really well. Otherwise, it just would have been a horribly tedious process to try and retry to get those hinges right in the right place.
0: And it gave you more time to make toast.
1: Well, <laughs> well, it, it, it was all, the toast was toasting. Had you this already
2: done. done the finish before you attached the hinges? What?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes I pre-finished the sides so they're little open panels and in the opening for each panel I'm filling out with a little kumiko of course kumiko yes kumiko
2: Mike a... do you like to do kumiko
1: um, this is the third project I've used it on so um, I'm not tired of it yet in fact I have a fourth uh, project slated for kumiko as well
0: kumiko sourdough toast that's I right. Think that, yeah. I think that's next. It's going to be
2: at Mike's little coffee house slash pastry bistro. Well, what
1: I want to do is I want to <laughs> make up a little Kumiko square panel, put that in the toaster along with the toast, and it will protect the toast and so that when you pull it out, you'll have this little white gridwork pattern on the toast <sighs> itself.
0: I want to see that.
1: That'd be nice. I really do.
0: All right. Yeah. Wonderful, Mike. <laughs> 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 Let's move on from toaster. <laughs> um our last question comes from Greg Zank. <clears throat> I don't know if that's his name or his code name. Uh, he says, I'm looking to downsize, uh, become more portable with a smaller saw than my old Delta contractor saw. I'd like to avoid remaking a number of jigs I've made over the years using the saw. Perfect for me would be to see what is available where the miter slot. <laughs> where the miter slot to the right is five and a half inches from the blade, yeah. and to the left, four and three eighths from the blade. Wow. These values seem hard to find on the manufacturer's website. Um, Anyone know how to get at these measurements? It it seems like he's working backwards and he might as well just restart. Yeah,
1: I was going to say, if you had said, I just made a bunch of brand new jigs for a table saw and I don't want to remake them, I would say okay, maybe this is a consideration, but if you said you made some jigs over the years for right. your saw, <laughs> you're getting a new <laughs> yeah. saw, nothing better than, than spending an afternoon making a new crosscut sled, yeah. making a new whatever, dovetail jig sled or, or a little whatever. Make some new jigs. Get some freshness. Yeah. But
2: also another consideration here, which uh, he may not realize is that he has a contractor saw, and he says he wants to get to something smaller. Hmm. That means job site saw. All right. Okay. Job site saws may not have T-slots or slots that are even the same dimensions as a contractor yeah. saw. Good point. True. So it may be completely irrelevant. You know. So uh, yeah. Yeah, and, get, and,
1: and, and, get the saw you like. Yeah. Don't don't you know buy a saw based on the miter slot dimension. Right. You yes. could be, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater there.
2: This is we yeah. have this is a standard Type of answer from us?
0: Go big. No. no, no. Is
2: that someone emails in with a question, and instead of answering their question, we say you're
0: asking the wrong question, uh-huh. which is essentially what we've just told him. It's like yeah. you're, you know you're thinking about this wrong. So, right. and also you know if you're talking about a crosscut sled, they're 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 sort of hard to fit on a on a on a job site saw so anyway. You know you don't have a, yeah. a whole lot of room be in front of the blade. And you have very little little room behind the blade, for, so you uh, may really want to nice. get a little
1: smaller, shallower crosscut sled, so you're not so. tipping all over the place. Yeah,
2: right, right.
0: So I guess it also depends on what kind of work he's doing with the saw and um what jigs it work, whom, yeah. what won't. So yeah, just plan on remaking your jigs or you're buying a new saw.
2: Yeah, you're. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how many jigs could you possibly have,
0: Mike? I know. How many jigs do you have?
1: Um, I've got. Th- let's say three. You know, I've got like three crosscut sleds, and I always keep the old ones and ended up end up using those with dado blades and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, But really, I, I have one good first-use crosscut sled that I use 90% of the time. I've got a little tall crosscut sled for um, cutting my dovetails with my dovetail blade, and then I've got a little tiny guy that I use for making miter boxes with mm-hmm. some little Distaco hold-downs. And that's about it.
2: I have uh, two small cross-cut sleds for box making. One of them is only for 90 degrees. The other one is 90 and 45 mm-hmm. built into it. I have a big crosscut sled, which now is pretty much a dado sled. Right.
1: Right uh, too. Yes. <laughs> and an extra table for Thanksgiving dinner. Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I have another cross-cut sled, which actually may not be set up anymore, but it had a really long fence and I made it when I was making the Shaker Infield cupboard. Okay. And also made it so that the fence was on the front edge rather than the back edge oh, because yeah. the parts were so wide that yeah, if the cool. fence was on the back I couldn't uh start it properly. So right. I had one like that. I might have taken that one apart though. Um
0: that's really. Well, yeah. I guess I have I've got a, one
1: for um, the little yeah. spline miters to hold my box at forty-five degrees.
0: That's, yeah, I have got a cross so cut a cross. and a spline miter box. Just spline
1: miters. Yeah, oh, splines yeah, are, on, are get beautiful. Get on board. Right? In other words,
2: you have a t- you have a, a tacky box jig.
1: Add, add strength <laughs> and beauty. TBJ <laughs> with spline miters.
2: I also made a – I once made a uh, other jigs you could have that you know would be like I had a tenoning. I made a homemade 10-inning jig which would clamp onto my uh, miter. Miter, uh, miter... Gauge? Miter gauge. 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 But, of course, that's irrelevant, because you could move it.
1: Sure. Doo, doo, doo. Yep.
0: Almost never use that, though. And you don't use the sound effect either. A lot of it, a lot of my jigs, you know, in,
1: instead of having the little guides on the bottom that ride in the slots, they're designed to be screwed to a, a miter gauge or two miter gauges. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I'll use the same jig if I go to teach, and the slots are in different places. So yeah. um, that's another way to get around that.
0: Do you Ooh. know if uh, – I know, Matt, you're a big fan of the the uh, pre-made runners for jigs. Yes. Do you know if they fit job side saws or the job side no saws? They, yeah. I thought they had shallower – um, miter slots, but I'm not sure.
2: You know, I think it would vary depending on the job site. So I wouldn't be surprised if the better ones actually had standard slots, but I honestly, I just don't know off the top of my head. Um, and when it comes to miter bars for sleds and stuff, there is no, I mean, just suck it up and buy some aluminum ones, uh, and don't use wood ones anymore. Come into the 21st century.
1: Yeah, I think I got mine from Rockler. I got some long stock. I was able to cut it down and get a couple of sleds out of that. I've used that for the last couple, and I like them. I don't think I would go back to wooden guides. Yeah, and you can
2: reuse them over and over yeah. again. You can always adjust them to fine tune yep. the fit to the slot, yep. and uh, they're, they don't expand and contract
0: with the seasons like wood does. Yep. Yeah. There you have it. All right. Hey, well, last time, you know, we challenged uh, our listeners to give us a funny answer to the purpose of the beveled end of an adjustable bevel gauge. And it uh, looks like we've got a few doozies.
1: Yeah, I think we learned our lesson. Not yeah. to,
0: not to, we'll ask people to funny. do this yeah. again. Don't be funny. Because um, as we
2: all know, we're not funny. No. <laughs> and uh, we, you know,
0: we think we are. <laughs> Nothing
1: worse than a woodworker without a sense of humor is one with a sense, sense of, of humor.
0: humor. <laughs> all right. Well, here, here's, a, here's a few sampling, uh Samplings. Uh, Tucker Tuck writes, The purpose of the bevel gauge is quite simple. as an oracular device. I'm afraid of, to look that one up. It points to the area where the craftsman is most likely to make a mistake when cutting or milling. You can ask me about the oracle at Delphi later and the role it played in Socrates' life, and I'll explain that to you. Yeah, we'll do that off the air. <laughs> That's um, what <laughs> Kay Fleming writes, I believe that the real reason for the angle is to allow the tool to be used for killing zombies.
1: Okay. That's
0: uh, interesting. Um, yes. <clears throat> Chipmaker 2 adds, type 1 is bevel down, and the new version is bevel up. The bevel down was traditionally used by old woodworkers to scratch an itch in hard-to-reach parts of the body. The bevel up is a new concept that can be bought in various configurations and sold at inflated prices to young, affluent, wannabe woodworkers that are just itching to own and possibly use hand tools.
1: No, that wow. was a very good answer. I enjoyed that answer. You right? enjoyed that answer. I did. How many
2: bevel
0: up planes do you own, Mike? <laughs>
1: <laughs> One, two, three, four,
0: five. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> now I, three, I think we got three of them are block planes. We we actually got a serious answer, and I, and I you know I think maybe this is right, but W R Pitts got serious with his answer, and he says in my 1939 LS Starrett catalog, the bevel end is shown to be used for inside acute angle measurements.
2: I think the most important thing we could investigate about that answer is why do you own a 1939 Sterrett <laughs> catalog? <laughs>
1: I'm glad that you do, but why?
2: Well, it, I guess it's
1: important to him. Oh. Oh, so I'm just, some people like to
2: accumulate that kind of stuff.
1: Well, he must have a 1939 vintage Sterrett bevel cage.
0: Yeah. Well, here, here
2: we that's go. That's very similar to the answer I gave last week. It was? Yes. I said it was to get angles that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise.
1: I believe your 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 full and complete answer was, it's something about angles. Yes, that that's what, what I said. said. He yes.
2: was ball. He
0: was in the ballpark. Yes. yes. Well, here, thank you, Mister Hand. The, <laughs> <laughs> the winner of our Type on glue package is uh, is J Ross eight two seven. Now bear with us. This one is uh, this one is long. Uh, J Ross says the angle on the end of a sliding bevel gauge actually was not always present. It was not introduced until the mid-18th century by a team of German woodworker-turned toolmakers, Matthias von Schnitzel and Mikhail ustenhausen Daspekovich. Wow. Matthias was in charge of manufacturing of baby furniture and an oddly substantial amount of small boxes, while Mikhail was in charge of assembly and finishing. During glue-ups of the tiny pieces, McHale could not get his meaty schnitzel-sized fingers inside the boxes to clean up the glue squeeze-out. So he had an idea when looking at his sliding bevel gauge on the workbench next to him. He thought if he cut an angle on the end of it, it would fit perfectly into the small crevices of the furniture so he could scrape away the excess glue. They immediately started manufacturing this new design and it was an instant success. Other notable items to come from this team are Blue-colored joinery tape, waterlocks, Rogaine, and flocking. <laughs> What's flocking? <laughs> flocking
2: was an early version of Rogaine, <laughs> by which you would put glue on your head and then put the flocking on it and make yes. it look like hair. So,
0: like a chia pet thing. Yes. Yes. You, well, you don't know what flocking is. I really don't know what flocking is. Well,
1: it's 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 um, the classic way to line. Bands did, on boxes.
0: Wait a minute! No,
2: no, no evaluations of its worth.
1: It's a legitimate and time-tested <laughs> method for adding a little bit of beauty and comfort to the inside of a box.
2: Beauty and comfort. Beauty and comfort. You, you spread glue on the on some surface, and then it's kind of like a pool table felt, mm-hmm. but it's a bunch of little dusty particles, and, you, and it gets glued down, and then you just kind of knock off the stuff that doesn't glue down, and you have a
0: a little velvety surface. Sounds fun. Yes. <laughs> anyway, Jay Ross will be in touch and, and get you out this uh, this glue. Um, meanwhile, that's it for this week's Shop Talk Live. Tune in again in two weeks on November 20th for our next episode. In the meantime, let us know what you think by leaving a comment on iTunes. And don't forget to give us the most valuable five star rating. If you have any woodworking questions, send them as well as your comments to shoptalk at taunton.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at www.shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Thanks for listening. Have fun in the shop. Until next time, see you guys.
1: I'm brand new to the Instagram. If you go to my Instagram page, you can see my toaster. I posted a picture of it.